0: Please turn your Bibles to just the book of Acts. Now, Acts chapter 10, if you would. Acts chapter 10, and just put your finger there. And uh, we will... Um, I actually have a lot of Scripture today. And uh, so we'll be we'll be going through a lot of Scripture, but we'll start here in Acts. But uh, let me just begin with a quick word of prayer. Father, I thank you for just your goodness in our life. Lord... Uh, Thank you for music, allowing us to express our love for you, our joy for our position in Christ. And Lord, just singing of your redemption and what you've done through the blood of Christ on the cross. What a wonderful, what wonderful theology is ours that, that can put our minds to rest. That things are settled In eternity forever. And we can just enjoy our life. And enjoy relationship with you. Even here. In this earth. On this earth. And in this world. We just thank you. You're such a loving and gracious God. Lord I pray that you would bless our time in your word. Make me clear father. Where things are unclear. Make me. um, Accurate. Lord. Above all, we, we are all searching for truth and, and we want to know what's right. And Lord, we're so dependent upon You. Even our own mind, we, we know that we can get things wrong. And, but Lord, even in diligent study, Lord, help us to be accurate. We know that we're dependent upon Your Holy Spirit to illumine Your Word to us. And Lord, I pray that as the Word goes out today, that it would go out with power and with clarity, with understanding. And Lord, we just thank you for the privilege that is ours to to be able to to open your word and understand its truths. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the past two or three Sundays, we have been uh, focused on uh, the atonement, the work of Christ on the cross, the purpose of his death. And and we've uh, looked at the... uh, the per, not just the purpose of his death, that it was a sacrificial, substitutionary atonement, but the fact that for whom did Christ die? We have been looking at that question, and um, we want to we want to encourage you if you have not been here for the past couple of weeks uh, that you would get the the uh, DVDs or or whatever they're making these days. I was I almost said eight tracks. But I know better than that. I said, I said cassettes the other day, and, and the kids looked at me like, "What are what are those?" You know. But uh, we do have DVDs of uh, or, or CDs, CDs, not DVDs. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's just, and you can you can get those. Just uh, there's a card there. Fill out what you want, and um, and someone will um, will make those DVDs for you. And, and I would encourage you, because we've, we've gone over the past, this is the third sermon now, and uh, we, we've just um, intensified our study on the idea, the biblical idea of an atonement and what that is. And I would encourage you to get those, because they've laid a foundation. Uh, today, we're, we're just going to go through a lot of Scripture And just see how, how we are to handle these verses that seem to contradict. And I, I will just acknowledge right off that this is no easy task. The, the church for, for many years has been, um, has been debating this issue. In fact, we can go back to three or four hundred years after, uh, the birth of Christ, and we see the first, one of the early councils, the Council of, uh, Ephesians, uh, there was this particular issue was on the table. The, uh, the atonement for whom did Christ die? And there was this man, Pelagius, and he, had, he believed that man's will was completely free, and free from even sin. In fact, he would say that the will of man has been unaffected by sin. And... And he would also say that man then was free to choose to not sin. It, he didn't sin by very nature, he just chose to sin. And uh, he believed that, uh, uh, that you can believe, you can have faith, apart from God working at all in your life and so you can see then the next step how easily it would believe it would be to believe and he believed this that justification was just merit just something that we that we did and he would leave that door open and you can see the church kind of following in those footsteps but there was a there was a, a theologian at that time his name was um, augustine and he fought vigorously against pelagian and the church recognized at that time, even at that time, that this was a heresy. This was not what scripture says. This was, this was a wrong direction. And the base of the argument was, is salvation primarily a work of man, or is it primarily a work of God? That's kind of what it came down to. And then you see it cropping up again in, uh, the early 1500's this is uh, with Martin Luther he began to read scripture and then he began to to read Augustine as well And, and he became convinced of certain things about salvation and his understanding about salvation become clear and he had to come out of the Catholic Church salvation was of Christ alone through faith alone and he and he uh, he began to preach these things. And there was a, pe- a lot of people that, that kind of climbed on board of, of uh, his thinking. And, and he was right. And yes, this had to be, this was in Scripture. And there was one man that, that was agreed with him early on. And his name was Erasmus. But he disagreed with this idea of salvation being um, uh, from God. And he wrote a, he wrote a a little piece, an article called Freedom of the Will. And Luther had to, had to respond with Bondage of the Will. And the, the battle raged on. Is salvation primarily from God? Is it God centered or is it man centered? Does man have to do stuff? Does man do things to merit salvation or, or what? And even again at the church, at the church early on, even at this time, the church recognized, yes, that's what scripture says. Scripture says that it is a, a God-centered salvation, and they rejected, they rejected, um, Erasmus and his teaching. And right after Martin Luther, you have John Calvin. John Calvin, in the later 1500s, he was just preaching really the things of, the, of scripture of, of that day. And as a reformer, as one that would come out of the Catholic Church, and he was just preaching through Scripture, and, and the church agreed, yes, this is the correct... He was, a, he was a pastor in Geneva. And he was preaching these things, but then there was a, a young man that rose up, and his name was Jacob Arminius. And Jacob Arminius, he came against Calvin and says, no, this is wrong, and, and he, uh, he preaches against uh, John Calvin... And, and Arminius was, was just adamant, and he, he said, we need to have a church council. The church needs to get together and decide these things. And, and actually, about 46 years after Calvin's death, and about one year after uh, Arminius died, the followers of Arminius got together. Now, these are the disciples of Arminius. They got together, and they wrote out five protests Remonstrance they called it and this was they wanted to, to uh, have this plugged in into the Church of Holland and they wanted the Church of Holland to adapt this and thereafter there was a, a Senate that gathered so he did get uh, a Senate together but he was already dead about this time and in 1618, 1619 there was hundred and thirty some scholars that came together, And they just thought about this and studied Scripture concerning salvation. And they come up with five points that counteracted these five points of Arminius, the followers of Arminius. In fact, they decided that Arminius and his teaching was heresy, and they threw those people out of the church and said, no, that is wrong. They threw him out and they come up with... Five teachings. Five things concerning salvation. We would call them doctrines of grace today. And they're popularly known as tulip. Tulip. And that came out of a church council. The council of Dort. The senate of Dort. And the church recognized the heresy involved there. The church was discerning enough to say, yes, that is, that is wrong. And so... So the church was, was thriving for a while, but then, and there was many revivals early on in American history. There were revivals, but in the 1800s, there was a, a man who, who rejected, who rejected the doctrines of grace. His name was Charles Finney, and he was a revivalist and he could produce revival. He could come into your town and he can guarantee certain results. And he basically rejected uh, the, the teachings of Calvin. And he rejected the teachings of the church of that day. And he was very much pragmatic. And he believed that, that man was, could choose on his own without any kind of work of God in his heart. And he believed that uh, sin was just a choice that man did. And they could choose not to sin. It wasn't part of his nature. Now, with that background, with that understanding, what he did, he he began to implement it. He was very pragmatic. And he could go into your town and manipulate and maneuver, and with certain techniques, he could push people to respond to the gospel. And it worked. It worked. There were many people that, that 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 were coming to these tent revivals and in the eighteen hundreds, early eighteen uh, Middle 1800s, late 1800s, he was very effective, and that he believed that that men could move toward God without any work of God working in their heart. So he would use and manipulate anything that he could do to manipulate people to come to some decision. And the church, um, it seemed to work. I mean, it's hard to argue when, when the people were coming into the church and, and how can you argue against results? The response of people. But there were people, there were men to teach against these things. But you know what? Even today we see these, this same teaching. In its extreme form, we have uh, a theologian, he calls himself a, an evangelical theologian, Clark Pinnock. And he is a, Theologian in the Midwest. And he he based upon this same thinking, he's he's wanting a renewed interest in Pelagian thinking, and that's what he is pushing for, really. And he believes that God is reacting to man. In some way, God is learning. He's not all-knowing, he's learning from man, and he knows the proper way to respond to man. And it's called openness theology, but it's rooted in the same philosophy in large the church sees the problem here and they reject that as heresy but on a practical level you can see this working out in most church growth movements and that's where that's where it's seen the most because it works on a pragmatic level it works you can produce you can get a lot of responses you can get a lot of decisions for christ by doing this method. The only problem is you have, to, you have to minimize theology. You have to minimize your understanding of Scripture. But it fills churches. It fills churches. Now, for the most part, the church in the past 2,000 years have rejected uh, these things as, as heresy. But in the past hundred years, past 150 years, it's it's kind of been open and the church has, has kind of lost their way on these doctrines of grace. In fact, I, I'd never even heard of it growing up. And there's been kind of a, a resurgence. a Renewing because we we were beginning to study scripture and lives that were devoted to study scripture are beginning to see hey we cannot we cannot go on any longer and ignore the fact that God has his elect, that God elects, not based upon someone's not based upon uh, his response to man of what man would possibly do. And you have a lot of men today that see through this. Theologians today that are, are throwing up warnings and red flags. Saying, don't go down this road. But the church seems to just have no discernment today. And it seems to be going down this road. More on a God-centered theology concerning salvation. Uh, not on a, a God-centered theology, but a man-centered theology. And you have people like John Piper. And John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Wayne Grudem, D.A. Carson, J.I. Packer, Arthur uh, Arthur Pink, Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson, B.B. Warfield, you can go back. James Montgomery Boyce, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you can go back. And one of the, the biggest proponents that, that spoke out against this was these doctrines that go against the doctrine of grace was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he has a lot to say. A lot to say. Jonathan Edwards, John Owens, John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Bunyan. And then we go back to Augustine. Now, I mention these names because you need to understand that we're not some kind of radical out there that that is rejecting the truth of Scripture, this is not some kind of radical theology now it sounds somewhat radical today because it's just not preached it's not taught but uh, it needs to be taught we have to have we need a proper understanding of the atonement and what Christ did on the cross and here's here's the point here's what i've been wanting you to see and I've, this is the the third sermon on with this the same point Christ's death was effective. It was powerful. It it did everything that needed to be done. It was effective enough to reconcile to God every sinner that was ever lived. With the atonement that Christ provided, every sinner could come to Christ. Yet, it was specific for those who would believe, everyone who would believe, In Him, past, present, and future. That's what I want you to see. And the question we're answering here is, for whom did Christ die? And there's three elements, three components to this atonement that we've been looking at. That Christ's death, what Christ's death accomplished. And number one, it's a full atonement, not a partial atonement. It was a full atonement. It did everything that needed to be done on the cross. It was complete Number two is an actual atonement, not a potential atonement. Now, this is where people are today. It wasn't, we believe that Christ intentionally, deliberately came to earth to save His people. And that would include those who were before Israel. It includes Israel, it includes the church, and it includes those who after the church. God intentionally came down in the form of Christ, or Christ came down in the form of man to to take upon himself their sin, and he died for his people. That's what we see in Scripture. Now, there's one other element of the atonement that I I think is somewhat neglected, and this is where I think we get most of our confusion from. Number three is, this is an atonement for the world, not just for Israel. Now, you're first going to think, Oh, I thought you believed it was just a, a limited atonement. Well, that's why I don't like the word limited. I prefer a particular or definite atonement. The word limited is not the best use of that word, not the best word, but because we can use the terminology of Scripture, and Scripture uses the word world, it uses the word world. And this is an atonement for the world, not just for Israel. And I think this is one of the reasons that we we, we have gone astray. We, we don't quite see it in Scripture because we are beginning to... Well, there's three things, actually. Three categories in which I want us to correct our thinking. Things that we need to remember when we come to Scripture so that we can understand these difficult passages concerning the atonement. Because it is a difficult concept to grasp. And sometimes we look through scriptures and sometimes the wording and sometimes the, the, the culture of the day and, and the history that we fail to understand causes us to, to be confused about this issue. And so I put them in three categories. There's three reasons for misunderstanding today. And we'll, we'll go through the difficult passages in scripture and we'll try to give you some three ways in your mind that you can say, oh yeah, I better watch out for this. Number one, number one, it's not on the PowerPoint, but number one, we have to remember the culture of the Bible. The culture in biblical times, the culture in Christ's day, was a a lot different than our culture today. And I think we fail to understand that sometimes. In Scripture, what we see that is that the Jews really struggled about the spread of the gospel because of one thing. Turn over. You're already in Acts chapter 10. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. And let me just set the context for you. Peter had been requested by Cornelius to come. Please come to my house and explain to me this gospel that you're talking about. Now, Cornelius was a Gentile. And that therein lies a problem. Because Peter was a Jew, obviously, and here's what he says. He goes in. Let me let me go further with this, setting the background here. He goes in, and he's tired from his journey. He goes up to 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 sleep on the roof, and he has this vision of, that God had given him, and the vision was about these unclean animals, and and he had to learn a lesson. Now look at verse 28. And he said to them, this is Peter talking to Cornelius and his family, this Gentile family. You yourself know how unlawful, it's not just a preference thing, it is unlawful. It is unlawful. It is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner, a Gentile, or even to visit, to visit him. And yet God has shown me... And this vision that he's talking about has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Now you need to understand that. That sets the tone for the New Testament church. That whole mentality. There's a prejudice there. And you can see how that would be in conflict when Christ tells these men to go and make disciples of all the nations. You could see an immediate conflict. Wait a second, all the nations you mean all the Jewish people and all the nations what do you mean? And so when the Holy Spirit comes upon them they' they're they're seeing huge results with the, the church begins to grow and things, and then it begins to spread. then there's real problems with that and and the Jews are saying, no, this can't be you know how can how can God who who made an atonement for us? Now, if you notice, if you remember in, back in uh, the passages where we looked at, He made an atonement for us. The Jews, we are God's people. The atonement was for us. How can it be for everybody else? And so those questions are in their mind. That's kind of the, the background. That's the culture that we see in the early church. Look at chapter 17, verse 13. There's a lot of passages, but just for the sake of time, I want to we'll, we'll skip to this particular verse. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the sin of ignorance, God is now declaring, he's now declaring, this is this is huge. He is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Now, think about it this way. The nations, they all had their individual gods. The Egyptians had their gods. The Mediterraneans in, in uh, Abraham's day, well, they had their gods. The Greeks had their gods. The Romans had their gods. And and you're saying that this one God of the Jews is now dominating over the whole earth and he is commanding them to repent. All people to repent. Yes, yes, that's that's it. You're saying that your God is better than all the other gods, the Jewish God. Yep, yep. He's the God of creation, and He commands everyone to repent. That's a hard pill to swallow for the Gentiles. They're thinking, "Wait a second, you know, our gods are pretty powerful too." But that's that's the culture, that's what they find themselves. So Paul, Paul begins to preach this, and he begins to he is the missionary to the Gentiles, and he goes out and he's preaching to this. And who's his biggest opponent? It was the Jews. And they did not want him going into the Gentile world and doing stirring this up. They didn't want to see this. He was a Jew and he was associating with these Gentiles and And he's messing up their world. You know what we're dealing with here? It's basically just prejudice. Now, some of it is based up in scripture. I mean they have, you know, they were God's people and and uh but it's just plain prejudice. But this prejudice had to be overcome so that so that the gospel would go forth. And so you have some strong language and some wording that might be a little confusing when it comes to the atonement. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Now this is, this is what the, uh, the apostles, in their teaching, they had to overcome this in the church. So they use strong language here. They use all-encompassing language here for the sake of missions and for the sake, or two things really, for the sake of overcoming this prejudice. Overcoming this prejudice. Look at Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. It says, uh, well let me just begin in verse 17, something familiar which you know. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled, us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen, God is a saving God. He desires to save people. He loves to rescue people. That's what he wants to do. And he's given us, his children, the ministry of saving and rescuing people and reconciling them to God, getting rid of the sin in their life so that they can come to God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, and here it is, that God who is in Christ, who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now what we do is in, in just our generic thinking, we look at that and we just say, well, the world to himself. Every single individual he is reconciling to himself. Now you can see well, that would be a little confusing. He's reconciling every single individual to himself. Well, no, Paul is talking in the for the sake of missions. Look at the context here: himself not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Again, he's using that term, going out and reconciling to people to God, using the gospel to bring people to Christ. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. Well, that's exactly what it is. We just go out and and stumble with our words and we just go out and present the gospel. But through that, that message, God is working in the heart and he's making that appeal. And we beg you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let's go back to verse 19. The world. Is it every single individual? No, He's talking with broad language there. And we have to know the context is is missions and overcoming this, this prejudice. It was primarily a Jewish church in Corinth and they had to overcome this. No, we are, we are, Paul's wanting them to get on board with missions and evangelism. But you know what held them in place was just their own prejudice. Now, that's hard for us to understand. That's a culture that we don't really know about. But frankly, we just have to go back 50 years in our American culture and there was times when black people weren't able to, to use the water fountain. Or they had to use a different water fountain. They had to go to the back of the bus. And, and that today looks sounds foreign what what's that about? And we understand the power of prejudice, don't we? and so these apostles and paul they, they're pushing this guys, we have to get out. It's not just for you and your comfort uh, little spot here in the church, it's for all the world. and you could see the broad language that he's using because of this of the emphasis. Uh, of the, the culture and the prejudice that was going on at the day in the day. The early church had to overcome that prejudice. And you know what? Today, we, we have to overcome prejudice. We have to overcome the, the things that make us feel uncomfortable at other people, about the poor people, or maybe the rich people. It's, it's hard to associate with the rich sometimes. And we have to go across those cultural boundaries and say, say, you know what? Christ died for you. I no matter, no matter what God you are serving now, He trumps all of your gods and you need to repent. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty strong message. It's a strong message. So when we're reading Scripture and we come to difficult passages that way, remember the culture of that day, the culture of the early church. It was hard for those Jews. And remember Peter. Peter would slip back and Paul had to confront Peter because he was going back to that that old prejudice. You know the stories. Let me give you another one just real quick. Here's another principle. Turn over to 1, 1 Timothy chapter 4. When we're reading scripture, we have to remember this. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10. Now I'm going to call this the principle of both and. Now I'm picking up that term from a man named George zimmick He is a brilliant theologian of our day. Uh, he is just uh, he uh, he's brilliant in his in the in the languages, both Hebrew and Greek, and that's where he lives. So if you read anything of him, you better know Greek and Hebrew because he is difficult to deal with. He's difficult to understand. But he delves into these things and he's, he's looking at this atonement and he comes up with this principle of both and. There's both and principle and we need to notice it. Verse 10 says, now the context here is about godliness and Paul is explaining to Timothy that you need to be godly. And he says, for, for it is for this we labor and strive. We work hard at being godly. Because we have fixed our hope upon the living God. That's a beautiful picture. Who is the Savior of all men. Wow. He's the Savior of every human being, every individual. Now, look what he does, though. Especially of believers. Now, wait a second. He's the Savior of all men, but especially of believers. Well, obviously, he's talking about in some different way. He is the Savior in some different way. And there is a sense in which when God comes down, when Christ came down and died for his elect and is rescuing his elect, there's a sense in which it benefits the world, all human beings, all people. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they should have immediately been put to death. They should have immediately died. In fact, God said, the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, they died spiritually, and they began to die physically, but they should have been put to death. But there's one thing that held up that, and that was just the promise of God. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I, I, I will give you a seed. And that seed, he, he will crush Satan's head. And this, this seed, he will win the battle. And that promise, that promise did two things. Number one, it stayed off God's judgment. His immediate judgment was, was stayed because of this promise. He allowed man to live and to enjoy. You know what? Man should never, man should not have been able to use up God's created resources and at the same time be in rebellion against God. It doesn't look good for God. He he just kind of winks at sin. He's just kind of, no, no, he's not doing that. He's just being patient. So the next thing, so it holds off God's immediate wrath, but it also provides God an opportunity to demonstrate His common grace. Even to those who are in rebellion against Him, He is, he is uh, demonstrating common grace. He allows the rain to fall upon the righteous and the unrighteous. He is being very kind and very gracious and very loving to a world that's in rebellion against Him, that is messing up His universe, that, uh, that does not care about His glory. And if it was Carl Dingus and I was God, I would just squash Adam and Eve and I would start over. God says, no, I'm going to be patient. And I want to demonstrate my patience. I'm going to show you some common grace. It's the both-end principle. I'm coming to, to save um, my believers, especially those who believe, I be, those who put their faith and trust in me. I'm coming to save them. And you know what? The world gets the benefit. There's going to be saving benefits to the world. And so he's talking about a broader sense in a different way that the world is spared. Now, look over to um, Romans chapter 3. Just take this one step further here. Here, But again, I want you to see the principle is the both and. He died for his elect, but the world gets the benefit. Okay? It's a principle in Scripture. It's it's very specific, but yet yet it has benefits that ripples effect that uh, that we see. Romans chapter three verse twenty three. Verse twenty three. Yeah, that's the verse you know. For all have sinned and falling short of the glory of God, we have trampled on God's glory. We have not esteemed it like we should have. We've, we've kind of thought it's it's no, you know, we just kind of throw it away. We've trampled on it, we've fallen short of it. Being justified as a gift, it's obviously God has to work in our hearts. God has to give us this gift of salvation by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Because the only way we can be redeemed is in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the verse I want you to see, verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly. He wanted everybody to see displayed publicly as, as a propitiation, as a satisfaction, as an appe- appeasement to God in His blood. What is He talking about? He's talking about the death of Christ. In His blood, through faith. So our redemption is only in Christ Jesus and it's only in that through that propitiation... Of his blood, the satisfaction of the atonement, the blood, through faith. Now, look at this. This was to demonstrate. What was the this? The death of Christ on the cross. No, this was to demonstrate, it says, his righteousness. And the his there is God's righteousness. Now, wait a second. We all know God's righteous. But I tell you what. If we just looked at this and look at just the passage here, Paul is saying, we have trampled on God's righteousness. We have fallen short of His glory. We don't measure up to what His expectations for us are. So, So, he sent Christ to die on the cross... For our sins, but it was also, it's both and it's also a demonstration of His righteousness. What does that mean? That means He takes sin seriously. His holiness demands it. He cannot just excuse sin away. And he reiterates it. He says the same thing again. He says, Because in the in the forbearance of God, in the patience, loving kindness of God, he passes over he passed over sin previously committed it's as though nothing you know that as though he he had ignored it but yet for the demonstration i say of his righteousness he is demonstrating his righteousness he is saying i'm a righteous god and you better be careful you say well i thought christ died for sins and and he took upon him uh, himself our sins and well, yes, that's true, but at the same time, one of those ripples effect, this both-end principle, is that, yes, it was a demonstration that God takes sin righteous, uh, or right, uh, sin seriously, and He is a righteous God. In fact, let me go on. His, his righteousness, He's demonstrating His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just. It appeared in the past that God was just... Unjust. I mean, he he didn't care about sin. He, he he would just let it go in his in his world in his universe. But all that wrath was placed upon Christ, and we see the righteousness of God and how seriously here serious that is. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. And it's and he goes on to say in verse twenty seven to thirty. That it was the Jew and the Greek. It's by faith, but it's the Jew and the Greek. And he had to preach that and preach that and preach that because they they just had a hard time getting it. My point is, though, in this passage is the fact that it's both in. Christ came down to save his elect, but it had ripple effect to the world. Now, this is where uh, this is a crucial passage. Well, let me show you one more John, uh, John chapter 11. This is a passage we read last week. John chapter 11 and verse 51. And you know the context here. We, we kind of went over this. The, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they got together and they said, uh, you know, what, what are we, we going to do? This man is uh, doing all of these signs and the, and the whole world's going after him. They're all going to believe in him if we don't do something. And there's two factions here. Jesus and His ministry, and His ministry is growing in popularity, and their ministry is just diminishing. And they said, this can't stand. We're going we're gonna to butt heads here. And this is going to cause a civil war. And uh, look at verse 48. If, if we let Him go like this, all men will believe in Him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Okay? You understand what's going to happen. Rome's going to see this, this struggle, this civil war here. And they're going to come and they're just going to squelch all of us and the nation's just going to be destroyed. Now, but one of them, this is Caiaphas, he said the, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people. now they mean it in a certain physical context they're not thinking atonement here die for the people it was expedient for one die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now look at verse 51 now he did not say this on his own initiative but seeing high, but being high priest that year he he prophesied. He didn't even know what he was saying. He was talking in the physical realm, but in the reality that he said uh, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also, or but in order that he might also gather to himself, or gather together into one the children of God, all of the children of God who are scattered abroad right now. The purpose of Christ's death was to, scatter, to to gather them around and bring them in and to and to, to save them. But who gets the benefit? The nation, on a completely different level, on a more of a physical level. And and that's, you see, that both and. There's some benefit there. And Christ, of course, did die for the nation, but not in the same way they thought. But it did stay, Rome's hand. Rome didn't come and crush until years later. Now, the same structure is found in 1 John chapter 2. Same structure, same author. So turn over there, 1 John chapter 2. This is a little bit more difficult passage for us to understand. But I think it's crucial. And this shows the both and principle. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Let me begin reading verse 1. The context here is John, who is... um, who is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he's writing these things. This is early in the church's history. And the question has come up, how do we deal with sin? And when we sin, does that mean we're not saved anymore? What do we do with this? And he's talking about sin. He says, My little children, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Now that's wonderful news. Here's how to deal with sin Here's how to deal with sin. We have an advocate with the Father. We we come and confess that before God, and his the advocate is Jesus, the righteous. <laughs> I like that. That's his title, the righteous Jesus, the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. He, he didn't make provision. No, He Himself is that propitiation for our sin. That's a strong word, this propitiation. And it, and it shows intent and deliberation that he came for us to, and it says for our sins. But then look, then he throws our theology into a a tailspin. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What, what is going on here? Why is John, why is John talking like this? Well, is he saying, and we have to ask the question, is he saying every single individual or is he talking categorically? Plus, this is an early part of the church. Is he, is he saying that this to, to inspire them to go out for missions? To go into all the world? Well, he doesn't even pick up on that. Verse 3 says, uh, But this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. It goes back into the sin listen all he's doing here and you can see this this isn't that complicated he he's just he's putting this for emphasis he's not saying every single individual he is saying um, this is a missional statement if you will this is this is to go out into the world it's not just for us god has made propitiation for even the world now what how can that how can that be Well, remember, remember, because of Christ's death, because of that promise that God gave Adam and Eve, it stayed God's hand. And there's a common grace. And man has another chance. Man has another day. Man has another opportunity. God is showing His patience. He is showing His love and grace to this world. And this term, propitiation, is an appeasement. It appeases God's wrath. It holds off God's wrath. There. So we can see there's this both and principle. It's for us, and he died for our sins, but it's also there's a benefit to the rest of the rest of the world. Now, so just keep that in mind, the both and principle. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. He says this: the Lord is not slow about his promise. What promise? Well, his promise to, to come back. He's not slow about his promise. So as uh, or as some count slowness, see, we're fixed in this time thing, and He's outside of time, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's God's desire, and, and He wants to put his, his love and His grace and His patience upon man, to give them opportunity to, to believe and put their faith in Him. He's not willing that any should perish. And so he is, he is patient with the sinful, rebellious people in his universe. And he's sparing their life. He's saving their life, no, no doubt. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 17. Let me go on. Let me give you one more principle, just real quick. There's the, there's the principle of culture. Understand the culture of the early church. There's the principle of both and. There's some benefit to the world of the propitiation of God's sin or Christ's death. And there's one other thing. is We need to recognize the terminology. And this is where I think we, we, most people get really confused. is just the terminology. Turn over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 verse 19. There's a lot of examples. But... Let me just use this one here. John chapter 12, verse 19. He says this. So the Pharisees said to one another. Now they're frustrated. You see that you are not doing any good. You see that you're not doing any good. They're frustrated. They're they're combating each other. You're not doing any good. The world has gone after him. He uses the word world there. They're talking about every single individual of the world well no obviously you have to look at the context obviously there's some qualifications to the word world every time you always have to look at that in fact in the book of john john himself uses the word world in about 10 different ways look at john chapter 1 john chapter 1 verse 9 and we can kind of see and and this is i think adds to the confusion that we have with this this particular issue. John chapter 1 verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world. Coming into the world. The world of humanity. Mankind coming into the world. Enlightening every man. And we have to qualify that in some way. Every man? Well, did every man have contact with God? In what way is he talking about that? But look at verse 10. And he was in the world. In this humanity, in the sea of humanity, in the, in the human world, and the world was made by Him, made through Him. What world? Well, the created world, all of this created being. So the world, as opposed to the spiritual world, was made by Him and through Him, and the world did not know Him. Well, wait a second, the world in Three different ways the word world is used in that passage. And so we have to be careful. Every time we pick up the... Every time we pick up the... And we read this. We read these verses. Here's what comes to mind. Every single individual. Well, no. You have to qualify it within the context of the the immediate context. But also the context of Scripture. Just the context of Scripture. In fact, look at John's point. I just don't want to leave it there. Verse 11. And he came into his own. So, So he's going from the masses... To the, from the world, to to the very narrow, to his own, to the Jewish people, and even his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God. And this is, this is where we, this is where we live. This is where we, we get messed up. We look at this word world and we, we, we get all scared. We, we do the same thing with all. Is it every single individual? You have to look at the context. Look at the context there. I have so many more verses, but the time has come. (laughs) And you are hungry, and I am too. But there's three points there. Look, if we are careful with Scripture, if we are careful with Scripture, we will understand these things. There's answers for a Christian society that doesn't really have a lot of discernment here. And we can step in and say, look, let's ask some questions of Scripture. Is he talking about universalism here? Did he die for everybody unconditionally? Or is there a condition of faith? And we see in Scripture, the context of Scripture says, no, it's all about faith. From Abraham to the last person that will ever be saved, it's all about faith. uh, faith. It's before the cross, and after the cross, it's about faith. Putting your faith in Christ, and when He come, He died for you. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, how do we apply that? What does this mean for us in everyday life? (laughs) I love the song we just sang, I will glory in my Redeemer. I will glory in my Redeemer. He redeemed you. There's something special there. There's a relationship there with you that God wants and He has. And He wants you to know Him and He wants to know you. And He wants that relationship. I will glory in my Redeemer. And another just a principle here is just the fact that we must be careful when we read Scripture. We must be careful one last verse. I just can't resist. Matthew chapter 7. Just a reminder. Just a reminder of these things. John chapter 7. This is Christ's teaching. He says, Enter the narrow gate. For the gate is wide. And the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there, is, there are many, many who enter it. But the gate is small. And the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few, there are few that find it. Man's will is bound up in sin. He cannot just choose to glorify God and to please God with his life. No, it takes faith, it takes a work of God in, in his life. This is a God centered salvation. That's what we see in Scripture. And then we just want to be consistent with that. Now, let me just say one thing. In our our Constitution, we're not adding the word limited. We're just simply taking out the word unlimited. Because it's a little confusing. We just want to be as biblically accurate as we possibly can. We understand that we're a large church. and, And it takes time to understand these things from Scripture. And we'll we'll hit these passages as I go through and I just teach exegetically from the Word of God. We'll hit these passages. We'll go into depth into them. But for right now, we just look at our doctrinal statement and we just think, how can we make it more accurate? And that's our desire. That's what we want to do. There's not... Uh, in my opinion, I know that there's people that hate us. <laughs> I've already been accused of things uh, and uh, spoken against because we're, I'm teaching on these things. I mean, what pastor would get up there, especially in his first year, and teach upon this hard doctrine? There's people that don't like that I'm doing this, not in necessarily in this church. But there's a lot of people outside this church that, that are fighting it. And... but we just have to be accurate. It's just our drive for accuracy, our drive to to know the Word of God. And, you know, we just have to say, here's what we believe. Here's where we stand. Come what may. But, at the same time, I know that the majority of the Christian community does not believe this. They have a different ex- explanation of the atonement they have a different explanation, but it's it's not something that I'm going to part ways about. Now they'll get mad at me, and they may not associate with me. But in my opinion, you know what? I will love them and 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 just pray for them because I used to believe just like that. And the Lord, just over time, just reading Scripture, putting things together, I had to come to certain conclusions that I didn't want to necessarily, but I was forced. So the world, the, the 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 Christian community is probably not going to be in agreement with us directly, but we can love them. We're not hyper Calvinist, and we're not going down this road of just extremism and all of this. It's not it's not anything like that. We're just trying to be biblical. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, Father. I thank you for your grace in our life. Uh, Lord, for, for the Holy Spirit to illumine our life, Lord, we would, we would just be so ignorant without the Holy Spirit. We would just take this word in a superficial way and, and not really understand it. But Lord, your work in our life and, and the Holy Spirit being there just helps us and illuminates us to these things, to this whole spiritual realm that we're just completely ignorant of. And we recognize, Lord, that salvation is from you. And we're so dependent upon you. It is not, it's not just us. It's not man-centered at all. It's by your grace. By your grace alone. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.